Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm AJ Scott. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Me, Myself, and I, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in March 2017. In our first story, Cameron Hines happens upon cinder blocks in an alley, which is just what he needs to make the DIY bed he's been dreaming of, but he's not sure if he's ready to shed his self-image of do-gooding. So this past summer, I got rid of all my furniture. Now when I say that, I don't mean that I replaced my old furniture with the new Sporgvine collection from Ikea. I mean that I threw my furniture out. It came at a time where I was experiencing some growing pains. I had just graduated from college, and after 18 years of school being led from exam to class to extracurricular, they were suddenly telling me, figure this out yourself, and schedule your life. And I didn't really know how to do that. It, if I could make an analogy, school is like running up a building, an 18-flight building, and then you get to the top, and at graduation, you jump off that building, and then you land, and the dust was clearing, and I was figuring out what to make sense in that dust. And a thousand voices in my head swirled of where to go and what to do, but I couldn't understand or comprehend any of those signals. So while everything up here was causing me chaos, I looked around my room just filled with things that I'd had for three years that no longer made sense in my life, and all of this stuff. I was in a, a nine-by-eight bedroom. It was cramped, and I had all this stuff. And I went, if this doesn't make sense, I'm going to make sense of this and keep this simple. So out went my bookshelf and my dresser and my desk and my desk chair, and suddenly the alleyway behind our house looked like a campsite of the last two years of my life in Chicago. And then I get to the last piece of furniture, my bed. Now, it had stopped being comfortable for months and was causing me some shoulder pains that I just had some reactions just now thinking about that. And at this point, it just kind of sat around as a hopeful reminder that, oh, you might bring someone home tonight, but <laughs> I wasn't. And the, the pain was not worth it anymore in my shoulders. So out went the mattress and the bed. And now I looked around my room, and it was simple, and it was clean, and it was organized. And I took a deep breath and relaxed. And a week later, that simplistic idealism is turning into the realization of, no, dummy, you do need furniture. <laughs> your books are a mess. Your clothes are a mess. Figure it out. But like I said, my ego was in a tough spot at the time. It was still really sensitive. If you're like, who are you? It would be like, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me like that. I know who I am. <laughs> so I couldn't face going and buying furniture after just throwing it out a week ago. But I knew there had to be a compromise somewhere. And of all places, it showed up like most things do in my life in an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> it's when Homer goes to college and he uses cinder blocks and two by four pieces of wood as his shelving. We all know, we all know. <laughs> and I looked at that and I went, this is perfect. It's clean, it's simple, and probably free the three greatest things for a recent post-grad. So I settle on that. And a month 
and three weeks go by, and Irony's having a good laugh, because what I thought would be really simple of finding cinder blocks in an alleyway is proving to be way harder, way harder than I thought. And at this point, it's a week before we're moving into our new apartment, and I'm like, I would really love to have some furniture, furniture to move into this new place with. And it was getting to the 11th hour, and one night after a really heavy rainstorm in Chicago, I decided to take a walk. It was about 1 a.m., and after a rainstorm in a city, everything just smells really earthy and really clean, and that three million people don't make a mess of that space every day. And I walked out. There was no one there because everyone still had the mentality that it was raining out. And it was quiet and peaceful, exactly what I'm going for in my life these days. And I get to the corner of Sheridan and Dakin, which is the cross street right under the l Tracks Fire old apartment. And from 100 yards away, I spot an alleyway that has this giant stack, 30 feet tall, by 20 feet wide, by 10 feet deep, of cinder blocks. And 100 yards away, you think, well, maybe this is a mirage that I'm seeing in the desert of like a thirsty man looking for water. So I run over, and I touch the blocks to make sure that they're real and that they're true. And I think I hit it a little too excitedly and bruised my knuckles a little bit, but it was, in fact, real. So now I looked around and went, is there anyone around? But it's 1 in the morning, and it just rained, so no one's around. And on the building, there are no security cameras. The perfect crime. And my heart starts racing because I'm about to achieve this idealistic lifestyle that I really wanted of simplicity. But then it keeps racing for another reason. And that's because I'm about to compromise one of my other idealisms. They tend to get in the way and mess up my life sometimes. But the, uh, the one that was giving it a problem was this idealism of don't steal. I grew up in a very, uh, a very safe home environment where my parents really had no other kids to look down and be like, oh, your brothers and sisters are out doing this. We need to, we can't really focus on you. I, I grew up an only child, so I was given the full extent of all of their moral beliefs and all of the hopes that they wished to achieve with a new person. So I learned and was encouraged very quickly not to steal. I would get freaked out just at the thought of uh, when a friend would come up with a candy bar, I'd be like, oh yeah, I just stole this from 7-Eleven. I'd be like, you're allowed to do that? It, the thought just never crossed my mind. So here I am standing in front of cinder blocks that I need to take if I'm going to have them. You don't, like, the, I don't, I've never seen, like, in a 7-Eleven, just a stack of cinder blocks by uh, the ice machine. <laughs> I know if I'm going to get these out that I need some kind of carrying device, and we've got a personal shopping cart back home. So I rush back, and in my head, these two voices are yelling back and forth, like, take the cinder blocks, don't take the cinder blocks. And at one point, the voice that's telling me not to goes, oh, they might be trying to build a hospital with those. <laughs> Which is really lousy of that mindset, because it's again referencing the same episode of The Simpsons. Because in that episode, Homer, it's revealed that those cinder blocks that Homer stole were being used to build a children's hospital. And the six that he'd stolen now canceled its ability to get built. And that's what I get for trying to discover myself and emulate a satiric cartoon character. So I get back home. At this point, my heart is racing, and I burst into our apartment. My buddy's in the kitchen cooking dinner, and I just need someone to tell me those words that I need to hear. Just 
give me that push. And that friend is the perfect one too because he, for a couple years of his life, was a drug dealer. So when I burst in and go, I can't steal cinder blocks, he's like, man, you don't know. You don't know. So he gives me the exact push, and it's just a couple words. It's just do it, Cam. He just gave me the Nike commercial treatment, and out I went to commit the most uh, lame heist that's ever taken place in Chicago. I get back to the scene of the crime, and I start loading in the cinder blocks one by one into the cart, pick it up, put it in. And like I said, this was a really, it was really late in Chicago. You could, it was just giving me those like, uh, those noir, like old school uh, noir film vibes to it. I'm a filmmaker, so it just, the metaphor was just forced. And all of a sudden in my head, I hear this narration of what I'm doing of like, a dying cigarette curled through his sneering lips as he picked up each cinder block one by one and placed it in the cart. Each bang of the cinder block, a gavel into his soul. And he knew that no matter how many carts he stole and filled his cart with, he would never fill the hole in his heart that the dame had left behind. I'm stealing concrete, so I had to make myself feel cool somehow. Miraculously, everything goes perfectly fine, and I start going back as inconspicuously as I can because I'm just carrying a shopping cart with eight cinder blocks in it. Unfortunately, I'm dressed as, inconspic as conspicuously as possible. I wasn't prepared for this whole exchange, so I was just wearing what was comfortable and clean in my closet, which was a pink button-down shirt, gym shorts, and flip-flops. <laughs> So I looked like a basketball player combined with a Margaritaville manager and for sure would have been arrested just on site even if I wasn't carrying those uh, cinder blocks. Despite my appearance, I make it home just fine. I get into the kitchen. My friend has just finished cooking dinner and he's holding up a bottle of hot sauce that belongs to me. And he goes, hey Cam, could I use this? I'm like, absolutely, we're roommates, we're friends, what's mine is yours, all of that good stuff. I turn back and start unloading the cart, uh, the cart of cinder blocks. I'm looking at it and just like, I've crossed a threshold. I'm not this innocent, this, I'm a criminal. There, there's no way other way around it. This is going to lead to one thing and another, and I'm going to be behind jail bars for the rest of my life. And then I turn back around and I look at that bottle of hot sauce that my friend is holding, and I realize that I stole that bottle of hot sauce from Chipotle a month ago. So this whole time that I was afraid of stealing property, I was a two-bit hot sauce thief, and that revelation just instantly knocked me on my ass. So here we are eight months later from when that happened. Those cinder blocks are furnishing my room very well. They hold way more books than one would expect. I'm still sleeping on the floor, and the pain in my shoulder that I had from my last mattress is gone as well as that naive and slavish notion to my myself as this innocent, uncorrupted child so far that still like, was yet to be turned gray or black-souled. And it's good that that's gone. And all it took was a rainy night in Chicago with eight cinder blocks and a bottle of hot sauce. Thank you. next story, 
Joe Page talks of how a solo trip to Manitou Island to visit her father's ashes on Father's Day helped to reconcile her feelings about family breakups. My dad's name was Joe, Joe Rowe. And he loved, absolutely loved nature. And he imbued that love of nature to myself and to my sister and to my brother and then my mother, who's no longer with us. But we took, um, he would take us out um, in, on all kinds of adventures. And um, he was an Eagle Scout. So uh, we would do adventures like go on a Sunday afternoon and go look and find a, a house that was empty and it was, uh, we'd call, we were ghost hunting and we'd go spelunking around looking for things in the house and see what treasured we'd find. And then one of the things that we did on a regular basis every single year is we'd go to Manitou Island. Um, we would go for a lengthy period of time, we'd, we'd um, backpack. And we were all very young. I was young, maybe you know, ten when we started, even younger. And um, this was in the '70s. And you know, Manitou Island now is obviously a very popular local destination. People from around the world come up here to go to Manitou Island. But in the '70s, it really wasn't that. There weren't that many people that were going. And um, so it really felt like a grand adventure. Um, we'd get on the boat in Leland, in Leland Harbor. We'd um, uh, get our, we were able to bring our dog at that time. We'd have these big backpacks on. Um, and one of the things that was a wonderful experience there was we'd go to one of the houses that was an abandoned house, because as you know, the, the um, park service took over land, so some of the homes that were there, as people left or died, then those homes would be left um, abandoned. So we would camp in those homes, and uh, as a kid, that was just, just, you know, wonderful adventure. So we'd set our sleeping bags up in one room, and that would be our sleeping quarters with the mosquito nets, and then in another place would be our kitchen area, and then, of course, another back room would be where there would be a hole in the floor and that would be of course our our outhouse our in outhouse <laughs> so it was such a special place and that's why when he died when he was 42 he was killed in a car accident and um, driver's ed teacher actually killed in a car accident and we as a family, uh, took his ashes out to Leelanau at the point, at Seagull Point at Manitou Island. Now I'm gonna say that when he died, it was a very difficult time um, prior to his dying because my parents had split. He had moved out. We'd had this wonderful close time as I just explained, you know, we had so many wonderful times together as a family. So. As a young person, at this time I was 17 um, or so, maybe 16 when he left. Very, very confusing time for me and all of us and painful. And uh, so when he died, 
Um, you can imagine from my mother, they had already decided they were divorcing, but they hadn't actually gone through the process of it. She had the, now that I'm a grown woman, I understand how mo difficult that must have been for her to carry out his wishes of taking his ashes out to the point at Le um, in Manitou Island. So we did that, though. The it was very, as you can imagine, very um, personal and beautiful experience hiking out to the point. And I remember as a 17-year-old think thinking how strange it was to hold a body. I held his ashes in my hands and feeling those ashes and watching them go into the air and thinking how strange this feeling was, but also feeling a, a total lack of connection to him. And I don't know why that was, that I just never felt his presence. You know, you hear people say, people die, and oh, well, they're there with you, you still feel them. And I just, I just never felt him, I just never did. And uh, I don't know why that was until about, maybe 20 years later, when I myself found myself alone, living in an apartment, having left my own family, knowing that um, I was feeling very lost. Uh, I do a lot of meditating, and I was in this place, uh, living alone, as I said, and uh, the light was low, and I was just really uh, trying to find some solace um, I was uh, definitely um, going through a lot of heart struggles and guilt, pain, knowing that I was doing what I needed to do, but still knowing how painful the experience was. And for the first time, truly, in years, I felt an incredible presence of my father come into me. And at that time, I knew what I needed to do, and this was close to Father's Day, and this was the first year that I was alone on my own, away from my family. I'd been married for 20, 21 years. And um, so I took it on myself to go out back to Manitou Island, and I had not been back there, um, really, I don't think ever since that time where he, we laid his ashes. And I knew that it was an important moment in, my, in the progression of my life to, to go. And so um, I did. I took that day on Father's Day, and uh, I packed a lunch. And it was a beautiful, beautiful sunny day, thankfully, gorgeous. You know, you've, if you've been out, had the beautiful white caps and um, just found myself reminiscing all the um, times with my family as I went across and uh, really made myself uh, meditate as I walked along the stones out to the end of the point to um, Seagull Point. And I sat there for probably two hours in uh, total silence. I did eat my lunch first, <laughs> but then sat there in silence under the tree. And you know, those trees in this area, there's some of the poplar trees that have that kind of shimmering sound. And I just remember hearing that sound for really a good two hours and it just really just filled me and filled me so much with peace and a sense of knowing and a sense of um, understanding of my father, compassion, self-compassion, and forgiveness of myself. Thank you.
Next, a series of breakups has Janelle Bauer so rattled that she calls a suicide hotline, but the absurdity of the long wait to have her call answered got her rethinking what she should do next. Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys to just like, for a minute, we're going to go down a hippie rabbit hole. And you guys just have to, like, I have the stage, so you have to go down it with me. Sorry. Um, so 2016, like, sucked for a lot of people, I think. Right? It, yeah. Uh, it started out really great. <laughs> um, and then uh, Saturn went into retrograde. Um, and just bear with me for a minute here. On March 25th, Saturn went into retrograde, and I, I looked it up preparing for this story. Um, for my moon sign, which is Leo, for all of you who might be wondering, yes, I'm a Pisces with a Leo moon, probably why I'm on a stage. But for that particular Saturn retrograde in the fourth house in my Leo moon, that meant that we were going to uncover unhealthy situations about our mother, akin to finding termites under the foundation of a house, which is literally what the thing said. Like, that's what the caption said. So we're going to start with that basis. So my mom, you guys have heard about my mom. She's like a hot mess. Uh, there aren't enough hours for us to like go into the full details of what actually happened, but... There was an issue with the family, and I had been kind of avoiding calling her back because I had been really busy. And so at noon on March 25th, I decided I was driving to Detroit. I was going to hang out with my best friend. We were going to have a weekend together. I was driving to Detroit, and I thought, okay, I have enough time to do this. We're going to do this now. So I call her. And it, like, fucking blows up. Like, so bad. I had, like, made up my mind earlier in the year that, like, I'm going to be committed to being the person that says the true thing, but, like, in a compassionate way. And some people just aren't ready for that. <laughs> and so I said some stuff that was maybe true, and then what hit her ears was, like, you're the worst woman in the world, and you're an embarrassment. And so it, like totally blew up and she was like fuck you and I was like you fuck you and, and then we hung up the phone and it was bad and I was like engrailing and I had three and a half hours to sit in the car and cry a lot and then I got to my best friend's house and he was like come here girl we're gonna be okay we're gonna go do what Louis Louis CK affectionately refers to as a bang bang which is where you have one full meal and then you immediately leave that restaurant and you have another full meal so we did that. We had Thai food, and then we had Spanish tapas and like all of the wine in Manhattans you could possibly want, which is for when you want whiskey in your wine. It's perfect. <laughs> so we did that, and it was great, and I woke up, and I was like really hungover. It was Easter Sunday. I had to like drive back really early for my waitressing job, and my mom calls me on the way home, and she's like, you need to send me back this heirloom jewelry or I'm going to sue you and I never want to talk to you again. And I was like, well, fuck, my mom just broke up with me and that sucks <laughs> a lot. So there's that. I was like, Meh, give her a minute. She might calm down. So then I like bolster some strength. I'm really upset, but I'm like, you know what? I live 2,000 miles away from her. She's been a mess forever. 
I'm just going to like search in myself and find the strength. I have this little family. I have this beautiful, these two beautiful children. I have this live-in boyfriend. And I can make this life that I always wanted. And I'm getting ready to go on spring break with my kids. And we go to Chicago. And we go with this wonderful family, friends, just me and the kids. And it's beautiful. They're like such a functioning family. They're like... They're like the videos that you should watch when you take a parenting class, right? So we go there and we like share an apartment with them and it's like me and the mom get up and we do yoga in the morning and like we make the kids meals but then we get to order in like Indian food because you don't get good Indian food here and it was awesome. And then we like took the kids to the Natural History Museum and I got to see a six-year-old's face the first time they see a T-Rex skeleton and like that was amazing. And I come home and I feel really refreshed and I go to my partner at the time and I'm like, I got to see what being with a good family is like for five days and I, I wanna marry you and I want us to have this life that we always wanted. And he's like, I wanna break up. Aww. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> okay. And then I like go into full on avoidance mode, right? Cause you know, child of trauma, like that's what you do. You're like, okay, this sucks. I'm gonna find an escape. So my favorite band happens to be playing in Detroit. So I called the Bang Bang friend and I'm like, yo, we're gonna go see Flynn Eastwood and it's gonna be awesome. And he's like, he's like, yes, we will. So we go, he makes me dinner, we go to the show, it's a great time. He like loves me up. We've been friends for a million years or nine years or so. A million nine, who's counting? I leave, I go home, he calls me a few days later and he's like, you know, you've never been single and we've never had a chance. Like, can we spend time together? And I'm like, yes, please, I love you so much. So a couple of weeks later, I take my kids, we go to Detroit, I get to spend an evening with him, it's wonderful, we're to meet with my kids at Belle Isle the next day. He's an hour late. He didn't call, he didn't text, he didn't write. He just showed up an hour late. We still do our Belle Isle thing. And I go home and I'm feeling really like I made myself vulnerable to you. I trust you. And I call him and I tell him that I'm hurt. Like, I'm hurt that you would be so late for me. And he says, I don't know what to tell you. So I do what I do, and I go home, and a good friend's band is playing, and I get really dressed up, and I, I grab a six-pack of beer, and I go, and this band's usually really fun and dancey and makes me in a great mood, but they happen to be at this like really tiny sh house show where I can like actually pay attention to the lyrics. And this line happens in one of the lyrics where he's talking about trust and trust being broken and trust being rebuilt, and all of that stuff just breaks loose all at once. And I run to the kitchen and I like start grabbing paper towels because I like didn't have my journal with me. And I start just furiously writing in the kitchen. And then I wad up the paper towels and I go to the friend that I'm seeing and I like shove it in his pocket. I'm like, don't fucking read that. It just needs to go away. Okay, thank you. And I leave. And I try to call Ted and I try to call a few other people and no one answers the phone. And all I can think is, I just want to disappear right now. Like, I check my bank account. I'm like, I have $450 in a car. Like, I could get really far on that. I'm like, no, 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 no. Okay, stay put, stay put. And I'm losing it. I'm, I'm, 
I'm terrified and I'm trembling and I'm crying and I think I need to I need to go to a hospital. But then like my my operations brain sets in and it's like who's going to take care of the kids and what about all that work you have to do and you have to pay rent next week and that's not going to work out, right? And so I think, aha, there is a place that you can call when one feels like they don't know where to turn. So I look up the number and I, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to call this suicide prevention line right now. I'm going to do that. And so I call and it's like, Ring, ring, ring. I'm sorry. Due to our extremely high call volume, <laughs> no one is available to speak with you at the moment. And then hold music. And so I start picking up my house, and I'm listening to the hold music. Five minutes later. Your call is very important to us. Due to our extremely high call volume, no one is available to speak with you right now. Please hold. And I'm like, is this some sort of like fucking suicide hazing or something? Like what is happening right now? Do you really want to kill yourself? Do you? Are you willing to sit on hold? Will you sit on hold like you would if you wanted your internet turned back on? Because that's what's happening. So I sit patiently, on hold, 10 minutes later. Your call is very important to us. I'm sorry, due to our very high call volume, no one is available to speak with you. Please hold. And I'm thinking, what is it like, special day on the suicide hotline? Like, what is happening right now? And then I start feeling bad for like being irritated because they have a really high call volume. <laughs> and like there are people that actually need help. I'm just like plucking my eyebrows and sitting on the phone patiently as though I need to have my long distance service set up and it's the 1990s. 15 minutes later. We're sorry. Your call is very important to us right now. Due to our high call volume, no one is available to speak with you. Please hold. I look at my phone, 17 minutes. I go, oh, for fuck's sake. If I can sit on hold for 17 minutes, I'm not going to kill myself. And I hang up the phone. <laughs> and I go and I put on my pajamas. And I'm like, look, you just need to be here. No one's going to save you right now. You need to put on your pajamas, and you need to get your fluffy blanket, and you need to go sit and ugly cry, and that's what you're going to do. And I did. I went, and I sat, and I balled up, and I ugly cried for like a really long time. And I woke up, and I called a therapist. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> In the next story, a solo train ride from Seattle to Michigan seemed the perfect space for Jen Loop to finally pen a tough letter she'd been writing in her head, but she tells us that the dynamics of passenger trains really challenged this goal.
the train was four hours late when it was headed outside of Seattle, and I got to see a spectacular sunset, Puget Sound, the water, and a great blue heron just landing on shore. This is a bird that's very important to me from Traverse City back home, and I was traveling back home from a month-long trip to rural Alaska. Now, the reason I spent time up there was some work and some fun, and I was staying with a friend, but also because I had this intense need to isolate because I was getting over a loss. And it was a loss of a relationship where the person was still around, but I was grieving love. Someone that I was certain that I was in love with and it was not working out. Now, I've always had a tendency to put myself in a lone, singular situation to get into my head, to really figure out who I am and what I need to do. And I knew after this month away, it's always easier when you're somewhere new, it would be hard to come back to Traverse. So I decided that I would take a trip, I would take my time on the way back and, and take the Amtrak train. It's called the Empire Builder. It goes on the top of the US and um, it takes about three days. So you're stuck in a little box with the same people for three days. But I thought it would be a great isolated experience for me to really get back into my head and get back to my heart. Now, I was still very much invested in this, so I was going to use this train trip as a time to write a letter. A letter exposing all of myself and everything I wanted and, and have this be the most epic love letter of all time, of course. Now, along with the dramatic and romantic idea of taking a train ride, I also decided I was writing this letter with calligraphy ink, and I had all my pens and my different nibs and <laughs> hand-pressed paper, and I was going to sit on the train by myself, and yes, there would be other people around, but I wouldn't really have to do anything or interact with them. Instead, it was gonna be all me talking to myself about this most important love of my life. Now, before we get too sad for me, I do believe there are a lot of different people that can be loves of our lives, so this is a love of my life. I have since moved on. Well, this is a hard thing to do when you're on a train because almost as if um, the, the enclosed space kind of pressure cooks this sense of community and connectivity. You really have to talk to people. And, and sure, you have the same people that have been there for a few days, but people are constantly getting off the train and on the train and want to know what's for lunch and if they can sit there and if you'll watch their bag. And, and so you're bound to have conversations with people. So my first morning, I went down to the dining car. And due to limited space, they ask you to sit with other people. And I ended up at a table with some older gentlemen, they were retired businessmen. They had a lot of opinions, unsolicited opinions, but a lot of opinions on my job as a dog trainer and behaviorist. But they had, <laughs> they had helpful suggestions on you know, what maybe I could do with that or where that could take me. And it wouldn't necessarily be a conversation I'd want to get into, but it was one I found myself connecting to despite myself because they had this same romantic idea of seeing the entire country and they had waited their whole lives to go to different places and find new things and this was something I also wanted to do and so I, I took something from that conversation and didn't see them the rest of the trip 
that afternoon, I went down to the observation car, which has glass tops, so you can look out and just chairs facing, facing the window, so you can just sit there and reflect. And I sat there, and then I sat at the little, um, the little tables where I put out all my inks, and I had them in these little Dixie cups so I wouldn't spill and make a mess everywhere. And I'm into this, I'm practicing my fonts, and I'm into this, this lettering, and I'm really pouring my heart out, but I can't help but over here in the booth behind me, there's another single woman or she was there and just away from her family and there's some frat type young men just, just really trying to chatter up and tell her about all their adventures and how they've been to all the national parks and all the great things that they do. And I could tell that she wasn't into it and I couldn't help but connecting to this idea that she might need help and she might feel like I was feeling. And, and uh, thankfully she got saved instead of by me, a bearded hipster who I'm sure was on his own self-reflective journey. Um, and so then I didn't see them again. And then the next day I was back in my little nest. So I was just sleeping on seats. I didn't pay for a sleeping car and they actually are quite comfortable. They recline and so, but I had a bunch of blankets and, and I had all my stuff with me and I was being interrupted again by an angry man who had gotten on the train at a nearby stop. And by that, I mean one of those people that controls his entire environment by just being loud and abrasive and saying things on, on his cell phone behind me, in the seat behind me, about how if those gosh darn cops come to take his guns, he's just gonna shoot them all. <laughs> God bless the little grandma-like lady who's sitting next to him just trying to have a nice conversation as he's trying to control the environment with his anger and watching everyone else as we're trying to like maybe silently form teams and decide whether or not he's going to the beer car soon. <laughs> And so that connected me too to everyone else. And by the end of this trip, I was still writing, but also I had struck up a friendship with the guy who had been sitting next to me in the seats right across the aisle for almost the entire trip. And he was one of those kind of sullen characters who would pull his hooded sweatshirt down just a little bit further over his eyes so you wouldn't make eye contact when you walked by. But he also seemed very comfortable there, like he had taken this trip a lot. And he started telling me about how he would often go and visit his daughter and how he didn't get along with his daughter's mother and he really wished they could and he was working and going to school and taking this train every time he could to go visit her. I have this tendency for self-isolation and I've found every time I've tried to do this, the world will pull you back in. There are always other people there. We are all on a train, stuck in a car together. And as much as we want to try to be in our own heads, those things will pull you out. And I finished that letter, and I had a chance to really deliver it and, and have some moment, but I can't, and I didn't get what I wanted. And it was devastating. But I can't think about that period without being grateful that yes, I think I lost a love of my life, but these situations will always, if you keep your eyes open, reinvigorate your love for life. Thank you. In the final story of the evening, Elon Cameron tells us that since beginning therapy as a child, she was able to reparent herself to the point of being a real adult and doing something meaningful with her life, which she had desperately wanted to do. Also, side note, 
Just before Elon's performance, it was discovered her wallet was missing. And for our listeners who were there that night, here's a happy ending. The wallet was mailed back to her the next week. The first time I saw a therapist, it was court ordered. I was a little kid in a turbulent home, and I remember not really knowing what to expect. I I was pretty sure the therapist would wear a suit because everyone I'd ever interacted with to do with the law in in any way had like a suit on. And so I pictured there would be this clinical office where I was gonna be asked questions by this person in the suit, and I was ready. I wore an outfit appropriate for the first day of school because at seven I knew first impressions matter. What I didn't know at seven was how to brush my hair. (laughs) Her office felt more like a living room. It had a wooden rocking chair with soft rugs underfoot. We mostly drew pictures. I don't remember much of what we spoke about except for the times that she held me and said, you're a really intelligent young woman. Don't forget that. And I felt pretty sure that I'd completely snowed her. (laughs) But I trusted her as much as I could. The second time I sought therapeutic counsel was in my first year of college, and I wasn't able to go to work or classes anymore because of a a major depressive episode. That's what they're called, major depressive episodes. It's like some surfer guy is having a bad day. It's it's so major. (laughs) And a rough bout of agoraphobia, so I just stopped going places, and my friends even thought I was a little flaky. I got a sliding scale referral and I met my bottle redhead therapist who yawned a lot and looked at her watch almost constantly. (laughs) I'm not saying she was bad at what she did though because I needed someone and she was someone and she was someone I could trust mostly and she helped me as much as she could in that moment. I felt like she kind of gave me this sense of like steering. I was just like, I don't know what to do with this thing. I just need to get back on course. And so she was there. It was around that time I began practicing martial arts. So obvious about me, right? (laughs) Um, Tai Chi, Qigong, Bagua, and meditation. I started to smile again. It became clear that I should go to college, but I had to be able to leave the house if I was gonna go to college. And I had to go to college because I had to go to art school and not just any art school, but the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And so the bottle redhead helped me become an undergrad. The School of the Art Institute of Chicago was an ego whirl. It was this fast-paced moment of work hard, do everything you can, create a bunch of stuff, get critiqued, do better, get your ass kicked, work, t- work harder, see if you can get another job because your apartment costs more now. And it was just this constant state of hustle that was like a fugue state until it was over and I had very expensive student loans. With no employment options, right? No one tells you like, oh, a fine art degree. <laughs> You know, like they, you have to go to this like sit-down meeting where they tell you your education costs 
could essentially buy you a house or two and you have to pay us back. And we'd be like, yes, I can do that. Um, so I practiced Tai Chi and Taoist meditation and I went kind of like all in. I did a deep dive. I felt like I wanted to kind of cease to exist. And so that was the beginning of another episode because I hadn't miraculously turned into Annie Leibovitz yet. And so I just did freelance projects. I was shooting senior portraits and headshots and quinceanera photos and dog pictures. And I waited tables and eventually I started temping. And so this experience of depression was more dense than any of the other ones I'd experienced to date. So something happened around the time that I figured out that I was queer because I knew a thing but I had no idea what to do with that information, aside from immediately dumping my boyfriend. <laughs> <clears throat> it seemed like the most logical step. Um, <laughs> and any like date I went on was always a surprise to me, so if I ever hooked up, it was like completely by accident. I was like, how is this happening? So I'd start wearing a rainbow pin, and I started hanging out at the feminist bookstore, and I started going to the one lesbian bar, which was terrifying. It was so scary. It's worse than losing your wallet in northern Michigan. <laughs> I had a really big crush on this person who was in my writing group, and so I basically diverted all the energy that I'd spent in art school and in Taoist cultivation in trying to figure out how to get a date. And it worked for like one whole minute and then she dumped me. And then I had a series of two month relationships. I'm not saying like one or two two month relationships. I'm like seven two month relationships where it was like week four, this is amazing. Week six, this is sure to be over soon. I felt somewhat doomed by that timeline. It was clearly not gonna work out. I wasn't making any money doing art. I was paying huge student loan debt. I was working and losing my free time to what I call the unrest. A fatigue so pervasive, it prevents you from doing anything, including sleeping. I started caring less about my job or opening mail or paying bills or anything, and I began to think that this little life of mine that I'd assembled was at risk. So I called Howard Brown, a health center providing services to the LGBTQQIA community in Chicago. I needed to get in. I saw a doctor right away and he referred me to a psychiatrist but said it would be six months for a therapist. The psychiatrist put me on every medication known to man. I was constantly titrating up and down on dosages that I couldn't even explain. I had medications that gave me absolutely no symptom relief, but weird metallic cabbage breath. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I still get mad when I hear the name of that medication said out loud. I'm like, oh. And Jen does too. She's like, ooh, yeah. 
I had medications that completely disappeared my symptoms, but also evaporated any desire I had to do anything at all. And that kind of feeling when you're just partying through the world of psychotropic medications, <laughs> it was rough. But my therapy ticket finally came around. And the first time I met with Jody, she seemed familiar. She was interesting. And she stated her ground rules. We would have three sessions and assess if this was a fit or not, which I liked, having had that experience of therapy that was a fit and wasn't. I was like, I hope this is a fit. Please pick me. She allowed me to ask her one personal question with which, and, and she made it clear there would be no more talk about her in our therapeutic relationship. However long that may be, you get one question. And so with one question, I was able to deduce that she was from a small town in Ohio. She had gone to a liberal arts college but would have gone Ivy League and was one of the first female traders on Wall Street who had decided she needed more personally satisfying work. One question. I wanted this therapist to help me because I could tell that she could. She had her shit together. She looked fit and tidy, artistic and wealthy. Her schedule book was well organized with tabs. Her pages were filled with writing that was tidy enough. It was neat, but not obsessively so. And she only wrote in black ink, which is very important to me. I don't know a weird thing about me. I hate blue ink. It makes me feel rage. I'd been in therapy before, but I'd never done therapy. It was like the previous times were some kind of lifeboat that everyone else built for me, and I just had to ride in long enough to get to the other shore of this known distance of water, and I'd know where I was when I got there. This was something else. We were going everywhere. We were going deep, and I had to build the boat myself. So we got into it, the childhood stuff, the danger, the fear, the sadness, the neglect, the lethargy. Jody referred me for testing, something that had been done when I was seven, with the big reveal that I was minimally brain damaged. <laughs> Thank you, Munson. This was different. We discovered that I had anxiety, a yawn, and depression, whatever. More than a couple factors of bipolar disorder, interesting. Some PTSD that I was dyslexic and had not one, but two different flavors of attention deficit. Okay. We went over the results together. I continued trying medications, seemingly based on the psychiatrist's free pens that month. I vowed not to see him again. We started mucking out the stalls of my psyche. I cried every session. I felt gutted for months. Beginning therapy for me was sort of like when you haven't shaved your legs in eight months. You can't use one of those 13 blade micro smooth satin shave kind of deals. You would clog that shit in one inch. You have to use the gnarly two-bladers that we used to have back in the 80s. That was all we had. And we liked it. Kids these days. 
It wasn't pleasant, but it worked. Wallet stealers. I continued the course, and that's when writing took a more meaningful hold in my life. I started needing to write. I told my therapist it felt like I was a squid who had to escape in a pool of ink every day. So I wrote about feeling the word, world, and the word. <laughs> I wrote about loneliness and city living. I continued therapy for several years. Okay, 10. I did therapy for 10 years. <laughs> and that's how long I saw her. In my last year of graduate school, while I was working on the dream of my one-day future, my one-day practice as an acupuncturist, my one-day office, I looked at her and I said, I have this feeling that I could be just like you. I could do good in the world and get paid to do it and have a good life. And she looked at me and she said, exactly. Maybe it's just because I'm an only child with the orientation of solo, the most salient part of who I am. But I remember living then, dreaming of a better life, working to find out how to do it best for me. There was so much that therapy taught me to consider, to dream up, to ask for, and to learn how to live without. I manage my mental health with an annoyingly boring list of grown-up activities that include but are not limited to regular acupuncture, daily herbs and supplements, meditation, a somewhat tidy diet, writing a lot, some exercise, impeccable hydration, essential oils, good friends, days off, baths, naps, pets, studying, things that interest me, rock and min mineral hunting and collecting, and bird watching. Perhaps this sounds boring to some. <laughs> But I'm well enough to see that I made it into my grown-up life. And that at 43 years old, I'm really myself. And I'm still... Thank you. And I'm still discovering what I want to shape that into. One time when we were visiting Chicago, I saw Jody with her partner across the restaurant at dinner. And I got the waiter to come over and I bought their dinner. And it was such a cool feeling. Giving something to someone who really gave me my whole life. I don't know if I'll ever be done with therapy because I'm that fucked up. The last few years has really landed me squarely back in, still working to rescue those exiled parts of me that were stuck under something heavy 30 years ago. But that's okay, because I believe it's an honorable way to use your time to bring forth the best that you have to offer this world. And I have to say that honesty helps. Taking note of how much better things are helps. And when it's bad, when sadness wins and I feel stuck and angry, I call my therapist. <laughs> I don't mean to be overly simplistic here, it's just what's worked for me. And it almost didn't work for me. When I graduated from acupuncture school with honors, 
Jody gave me a fancy pen, a Mont Blanc, just like the one that she wrote with. I felt like I had a pen just like Dad's. <laughs> and she only gave me black ink cartridges. <laughs> I'm not yet at the place where I feel like I can just carry it around and use it as a pen, like at the bank and stuff, but I have it, and it's mine, and I earned it one hour a week for 10 years. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and our guest MC, Jen Cameron. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us next month for a check, please. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.